Keep your Bibles uh, right where they should be, where Harry Sr. just read from, chapter 11, 36 through 45. That is the, uh, the rest of, of chapter 11. So we're going to wrap up chapter 11 today. Last Sunday, we looked at the first set of predictions in Daniel's fourth vision, which have to do with Persia and Greece. Uh, that's what we focused on last week. Um, these uh, particular prophecies have already come to pass. Um, the Medo-Persian Empire is long gone. The Greek Empire of old is gone. And so these things have already come to pass. And that was kind of the mind-boggling, mind-blowing part of, of last week's sermon in that text. It's just that the precision in which God predicts and then fulfills, it's just incredible. So those things have come and gone. The next set of predictions uh, in, in the passage that we're looking at today deal with the last earthly king, uh, and, and we refer to him as Antichrist, the Antichrist. Um, he will be very much like the emperor that we looked at last week at the very end of our passage, and that was Emperor Antiochus Epiphanes. I think it's kind of interesting that the, the way that uh, that section of Daniel is written, you've got this horrible, horrible Greek emperor, like probably one of the worst kings of all time, and then it transitions right into the worst king of all time, Antichrist. So uh, it's, it's not by happenstance or chance that the Holy Spirit uh, does it in this way. We go from one of the worst earthly kings to the worst earthly king. And, and by the way, we skip over a lot of we skip over basically the Roman Empire and some other things that have taken place. Uh, but that's what we will be looking at today. And we've, we've already looked at the Antichrist a bit. Uh, we were first introduced to him in Daniel 7. Uh, there he is referred to as what? The little horn. And that was in verse 8. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that many of you who read your Bibles are aware that the New Testament points to him a lot. Uh, he is pointed to in the Old Testament, but the New Testament puts a lot of emphasis on him. In Matthew 24, 15, he's called the abomination of desolation. Not to be confused with that, that act that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes committed in the temple where he sacrificed a pig, which is referred to with that same title. Not to be confused with that king and that um, uh, event. He is actually, the Antichrist is actually called that by name. Jesus identifies him as such. So there's two abominations of desolation that occur. There's one that happens through Epiphanes, and then there's one that happens through um, Antichrist, the last king. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3, he is referred to as the man of lawlessness, as well as the son of destruction. In Revelation 13.1, he is called the beast. The beast. Um, that's a frightening title. Uh, you know, we're not talking about a WWF wrestler or some kind of MMA fighter who's known as the beast. Then there used to be a guy called the beast back in the old UFC days. This is the beast, capital B. Our passage focuses primarily on the career of Antichrist. And this text lists 15 things he will do during that seven-year reign. I, I was kind of astonished at how 
topical and how practical this last set of predictions in Daniel 11 are. It's just, really, it's just, he shall, he shall, he shall, he shall, and then it describes what he's going to do. And so it's laid out in a very practical fashion, and we're going to examine it in, in that way. All right, guys, 15 things Antichrist will do while he is in power. Number one, he will do as he pleases. He will do as he pleases. See how simple the text is? Look at 36a. And the king, king reference to Antichrist, shall do as he wills. This dude, when he comes, one of the ways that you'll know he's here is that you're going to have a king that literally does everything and anything he wants. He does not report to a Congress. Everything he will do will be by executive order, and no one will be able to refute him. This is what he will be known for. He will be independent of any authority apart from himself. Midway during his seven-year reign, he will exercise the political power given him by the ten kings who have elected him. Did you know that this is actually how he comes into power? He's elected by ten kings. Revelation 17, 12 through 13, it says the ten horns, those are the kings, that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. That's interesting. Together with the beast, there's Antichrist. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. That's how it's going to play out. Bottom line, this guy is going to have one in particular to answer to, and that's it. And that's, that's the dragon of Revelation. That's Satan. He's not going to answer to other earthly kings or any other earthly authority. He's, he's going to do exactly as he pleases at all times. He's even going to attempt to change the times. He's going to institute his own law. He's going to do everything that he wants. Now, that's some power, isn't it? Uh, we think that our presidents here and stuff have power, and they do have some kind of power, but really they're just a bobblehead representative of the nation. They really don't have the kind of power that we think they do when we go to the polls. Well, he's got to fix everything. No, he's not. He's limited to the Congress, to the Senate. This guy does not have to answer to anyone. He will do as he pleases. Number two, he will deify himself. He will deify himself. 36b, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. The idea there is that he makes himself into a lower g god. He is going to be like a god. He is going to hail himself as god and raise himself up above all others with this ultimate godlike authority. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 until the man of lawlessness exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's what the scripture says of him. So it's not just that this guy will do as he pleases. How can you get to the place of doing as you please? Make everyone believe you're a God. If you are seen as a God, if you are understood to be a God, 
you will be worshipped as a God and you will have total autonomy and freedom and power to do whatever you will. Some people out there have a God complex where they actually think they're God and they carry themselves in this way. This guy is actually going to live this out. So he is going to deify himself. He is going to take the place of God in the temple and proclaim himself as God. And of course he's going to demand worship. And when people don't worship him, he is going to kill them. He is going to slaughter them. And of course, number three, he will blaspheme the one true God, the God of Israel, verse 36c. So first of all, the blaspheming begins when someone begins to claim that they are God. They are uh, usurping God's authority and position and throne, and they are putting themselves in the place of it. So the blaspheming starts there. He will blaspheme the one true God. 36c, and shall, and here it says, and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods, lowercase g on that last gods. So he's going to take the place of God, that's blasphemy. He's going to say things that are blasphemous against God. He's going to curse God. He's going to reject God. He's going to deny God. He's going to malign God. He's, he's going to do everything in his ability and power to undermine and belittle the true God. And, and really, all of us would say, well, man, that's a, that's a really horrible person that, that would go that far. Well, everyone who denies Christ is an antichrist. And everyone who denies Christ does the same thing. It may not be as public or uh, outward, but you know, you're, you're still rejecting the Creator and the Messiah. So there's parallels with the average Joe who hates Jesus. But this guy is going to take it to another level, and, and you're going to be able to see it. Well, we probably won't, because hopefully we'll be with the Lord. But people will be able to see him doing these things and blaspheming. and It's going to be very public. It's going to be on the world stage. Four, he will prosper until sin is full. 36D, he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Antichrist will succeed in spreading his influence around the world, both politically and religiously, Revelation 13, 7, and 8. But when Israel's indignation, sin, has reached its max, God will intervene and bring an end to Antichrist's prosperity, his global reach, and he will rescue his people. He will rescue the Jews at that time. And this happens at the end of the 70th week. We've studied these things, right? Daniel 9, verse 24. So this guy, it's going to be really, really weird because when somebody lives their life in this way, you wouldn't think that they would prosper in any way. We certainly as Christians believe that if we were to turn against God in this way, we would not live prosperous lives. But according to God's decreed plan, this guy will be able to do all of these things and grow in wealth, grow in power, grow in influence, grow in admiration. People will have admiration and respect for him. It's incredible that he will do these things and yet he will prosper. Now we think that no one should prosper who does that. But it's part of God's design. It's part of his decreed plan to prosper this guy until that moment where God rids the earth of sin. 
rids it. It's been rid of sin in a spiritual sense for those who are believers, but we cannot say, and some people believe that these things have already come to pass. How can we say that when sin is still running amok, is rampant in our world? Do, do any of us in this room actually believe the preteristic view that the world is getting better? I don't understand how people come up with these things. I don't see a world that's getting better. It seems to be getting worse, right? It is getting worse because sin is, is going to reach its max even globally, not just in the nation, but globally. And during this time, he is just going to prosper and prosper and prosper until God brings it all to an end. I can't wait for the day that I don't have to wrestle with sin anymore. It's going to be awesome for it to not be in the world like it is today, too. I mean, are you excited about that? I can't stand sin. I can't... I have to admit, I tend to hate other people's sin more than my own. That's a problem. I need to hate my sin more than I hate someone else's, right? But I just hate it. I hate... I hate what it causes. I hate the effects. I hate that. And it's, I hate. There's hate. Isn't hate a product of sin? Probably not when you hate sin. It's actually approved. And the scripture says hate sin. But one day it's going to be gone. It's going to reach its max and it's going to be gone and God's going to wipe the earth clean. I can't wait for that. This guy's going to prosper before that takes place. Five, he will abandon his religious heritage. Verse 37a um, Daniel puts it like this, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his father, of his fathers. Antichrist will be a descendant of the Roman Empire, but he will not worship the Roman gods. He's not going to worship the gods that, that, that they worshipped in time past or any of that, or if, if the empire is revised in some sense, it becomes uh, what it was, but different, more modern, you know, and they, they bring back the old time religion that they had. He's not going to follow any of that stuff. He's not going to be bowing to Zeus or to any of those gods. He's not going to worship the gods of his ancestors. And I do believe he's going to be of Roman descent because you've got the ten toes in, in uh, Daniel uh, 2 and you've got this expression of the Roman Empire kind of always being around and then coming back. Uh, so I think he's going to be of Roman descent. But he's not going to worship their gods. He will consider himself a god. Why would someone who considers himself to be God worship gods? You worship yourself. So he's not going to worship gods. He's going to worship himself. And the whole world will be persuaded to worship him as God by the miracles the false prophet will perform in his name. Revelation 13, 13. Uh, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. So this false prophet that will be the partner of the beast will perform these signs. And you've always had false prophets in the world that have been able to do things through demonic power. He's going to be able to do these things, and that's just going to catapult the beast, Antichrist, up. It's going to exalt him and cause people to believe in him, to put their faith in him, to worship him. And as I said, those who refuse to worship the image of the beast will be slain. Revelation 13, 15. Those who actually do worship him, because many will be persuaded that he is Messiah and all these things, those who do worship him will be given markings so they can engage in commerce, right? You've heard about that, right? The number of the beast, 666, those sorts of things. You know, only those who worship him and are given markings will be able to conduct commerce 
buy, purchase, sell. This is going to be a, a crazy, crazy time. You can read about that in Revelation 13, 16 through 17. Six, he will repudiate the messianic hope of Israel. 37b, the one beloved by women. Okay, the one beloved by women is Messiah. Okay, that's Jesus. Every Jewish girl dreamed and still dreams of giving birth to Messiah. First of all, motherhood in Jewish culture is huge. If you can't have a baby, you've got issues. You're not reaching your potential in that culture. The ultimate glory for yourself and gift from God to yourself as a, as a Jewish bride or a Jewish woman would be to actually become pregnant and have the Messiah as a baby. That, that was like, I mean, that, this is what Jewish moms back in these days, this is what they wanted. This is what they longed for. I want to be chosen by God to, to give birth to Messiah. And this is one of the reasons why uh, we esteem Mary in the way that we do. Mary is esteemed because of that reason, because she was uh, blessed by God uh, to carry the Son of God. During the Great Tribulation, there will be an outcry for Messiah. The people will be crying out, Lord, you know, God, send us Messiah, send us Messiah, right? Because things are going to be really hard on them during this time, harder than ever before. They are going to be crying out for Messiah. They are going to be crying out for the Beloved One to come through the Virgin as Isaiah prophesied. You see, the Jews believe that Messiah will come in that way. They just don't believe that he's come. They don't believe that it's fulfilled. They don't believe that it's happened. So they're anticipating his arrival through a virgin. And all of the, you know, all of the virgin Jewish girls of this time will be praying and hoping that they get chosen so Messiah can come and put down this Antichrist and all of the bad things that are happening. But we know that these things have already come to pass. Messiah has already been born of a virgin. He's already completed his work. But as I said, the Jews reject that truth, and that's why at this time they'll be praying and praying and crying out for it to happen. And you know what's going to happen is Antichrist is going to know about this, and he is going to do all that he can to repudiate them and to smash their messianic hopes. He's not coming. He's never coming. All of that stuff's a lie. This is what he's going to do. They're going to be hoping and hoping and hoping, and he is going to work to destroy that hope. There is no beloved one of women. Now, John MacArthur puts a, a different spin on 37b. He thinks it has to do with Antichrist's lack of desire for women. He wrote, this could mean that Antichrist will be a homosexual. The idea here is that he's not going to like women. It doesn't have to do with Jesus coming through a woman. It has to do with the Antichrist isn't going to be attracted to women. He's not going to want to have anything to do with women. That certainly could be true. You could interpret this verse in that way. He says, if he's not homosexual, it surely means he has no normal desire for or interest in women. He would be one who is celibate. That could be. With all of this power, with all of this wealth, with all of this influence, hailed as the king of kings, lower K, on earth, I find it hard to believe that he doesn't have a harem. 
But I don't know. I don't know. We don't know for sure. Seven, he will exalt himself above all. 37C, he shall pay, uh, shall not pay attention to any other God. We've already kind of touched on that. For he shall magnify himself above all. Okay, just use logic. If you think you're a God, you're not going to be interested in worshiping other gods. That's going to take attention and glory away from you, right? That's going to take worship away from you. You know, if you're a Hollywood superstar, you don't go around talking about how great all the other actors are. You talk about yourself. There's some that do that, I guess. But the focus here is on him. The emphasis is on him. He wants all of the glory. He wants all of the worship. He is going to try to exalt himself above every living being, every person, and whatever gods the people are worshiping at the time. Would say his lust for self-glory will drive him to exalt and magnify himself above all gods and all people. Just like Lucifer, who is truly the, the super, the narcissist of narcissists. Antichrist will be like Satan in that regard. This, this is precisely why this beautiful servant of God, angel Lucifer, was driven and, and booted out of heaven because of this self-glory and self-exaltation. Well, you know what? The servants of Satan are after the same things that he's after. They are. And, and this is precisely what you see playing out here. You've got, that, you've got narcissism and self-glory in the dragon, Satan, you're going to have it in his servant, Antichrist. He is a super narcissist. Eight, he will pursue power. Verse 38, this is going to be his ultimate goal. This is going to be his, this is going to be his God. Power is going to be his God. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, talking about the, his forefathers' gods, a God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. The term for fortress is used five other times in this chapter, and each time it means a strong place. Power is to be the God of Antichrist. That is his God, power, and he will spend his fortunes he will spend his money. He will empty his treasuries to obtain power. He will use all of his wealth to obtain more and more power. He will not be satisfied ever. He will have such a hunger for power. That is his God. Can we think of a modern day example, or really a postmodern example, of someone who is after power in this way? I can't think of anyone, maybe some of our politicians. He is going to be all about power. How will you know if he's in the world? You're going to have someone that fits the description of all these things and someone who is just every move they make, every dime they spend, every, every political, um, uh, religious, every move they make is about acquiring more power, more fortresses. He will pursue power. Number nine, he will declare war against foreign powers. That's verse 39a. Puts it like this. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. 
Okay, the idea here is this foreign god is a, is a god that his forefathers, his ancestors did not worship. This is a, a god unlike any other god, a different god. Antichrist will, will come to power offering peace through a covenant with Israel, chapter 9, verse 27, but he will not hesitate to use military power to expand his rule, his dominion. He will invade other nations and he will get help from a foreign god, lowercase g. Who is this foreign god, the, the foreign god that, that uh, according to scripture here, that his ancestors didn't worship? Who is this foreign god? Revelation 13, 4, the dragon. It's Satan. It's the god of this world. It's the god of the air. It's the prince and power of the air. It's, that's where his power that's where his ability and his authority come from. They come from that foreign God, Satan himself, the dragon. Satan is the one who will give him authority, give him power. And uh, it's, this is an interesting image that we have up here. Who does this remind you of? Who does that look like, according to all of the medieval art and stuff that's been out there? Who does that look like? That looks like Jesus, right? At first I saw that and I saw this horned beast whispering in his ear, and I thought, that's just not going to happen with Jesus. Maybe you're thinking of the wilderness where the devil was always there tempting him, but this painting was painted probably three, four, five hundred years ago. That is actually Antichrist. Antichrist claims to be Christ. That's what an Antichrist does. Not only do they reject, but they claim to be Christ. So the painter deliberately makes the image here look like Jesus because Antichrist is going to assume that role. Now, here's how you see the difference here. What is that? That's a hand. What do you see missing from the hand? You see any holes? No, you don't see holes where the spikes were, do you? The painter deliberately put that into the painting so that everyone... Would, say, would not say, oh, no, it's Jesus. Look what's happening. No, it's not Jesus. It's Antichrist. He doesn't have the holes. That guy didn't go to the cross. So when you think of Antichrist, think of one who pretends to be Christ. He literally pretends to be Christ. He claims to be Israel's Messiah. He claims to be the Messiah of the world. And this is how he gets all of this worship. This is how he gets all of that stuff going on. And this is obviously Satan whispering in his ear, giving him instruction. That beast right there is the one that gives that, that dragon is the one that gives that beast the authority and power to do what he's going to do. To do, what was our first point? As he pleases. Okay? Number 10, it just kind of keeps ramping up and building up. He will sell political power to his supporters. He will sell. He will market. He will sell political power to his supporters. Verse 39b. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. And look at this. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for what? For a price. This guy is going to be a realtor. Any realtors in the room? Repent and be baptized. I'm just kidding. We need you. 
Antichrist will appoint rulers over his kingdom. He's going to do it. His kingdom is going to be so massive, he's going to have to have rulers in every province. But he's not going to appoint them through political process. He's, they're not going to be voted in. They're going to be, look, you, taught, you 10 guys right here, you fit the bill. How much money do you have? He's going to sell governorships is what he's going to do. He's going to sell parcels of land to people that he believes have the money and those who can pay, and those are going to be his rulers. Now, the selling of these high positions in these provinces, what's going to happen? That is going to increase his total net worth exponentially, right? Now you're selling these high positions for millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. Who knows? Ultimately, it's going to put money in his treasuries. It's going to put cash and gold and precious things in his treasuries and give him the ability to become even more powerful. Because in this particular world, money equates to power, right? In a fallen world, money brings power. The 11, he will defend himself against other nations. Verse 40a. What does that mean? It means he's going to be attacked. It means there's going to be envious kings out there that say, no, not on our watch. Or, I think really what's happening is they want his position. They want his supremacy. They want his sovereignty, if you want to put it that way. And they're going to come against him. 40a, at the time of the end. So this happens in the latter part of the seven years, the latter part of the three and a half, the last three and a half. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many, with many ships. You've got a full armada here coming. You've got full-blown like global warfare happening here. These kings and these kingdoms, these nations are going to align against him and they are going to put it on him. They are going to attack him. In verses 2 through 35, the last set of predictions, the king of the south represents the Ptolemies, right? Or the kings of Egypt. In this invasion, Egypt will not come alone, but will be joined by the Libyans and the Cushites. Uh, what is meant there? Uh, these will be the allies of the Egyptians at that time. The Libyans and Cushites may represent the Arab nations in the Sinai area, the Persian Gulf region. So you've got all of those Arab nations that, that may very well just join up with Egypt and bring this massive force against Antichrist, this last king. And at the same time that this is happening, the king of the north is going to attack him. So he's getting it from above, he's getting it from below, all at the same time, they are going to come against him. In verses 2 through 35, the king of the north represents the Seleucid kings of, or the Syrian kings, but I don't think that's what is meant here. I don't think that's, that's what, in, what is intended here. Uh, some Bible scholars equate this invasion with one by Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38.15 uh, says, Come from the far north. If they come from the far north, then that's not Syria because Syria would be to the immediate north, right? Which nation would be to the far north? Russia. Could the king of the north be the Russian premier, the Russian president? Certainly 
Either way, the king of the south and the king of the north will fight against Antichrist. Israel will be occupied uh, at this time. This war will take place in their land, about 200 mile radius up and down all of Israel. We call it Palestine today. We should call it Israel. It'll be occupied at this time. Many Jews will flee because of the bloodshed, the battle. They get sucked into the battle. They're going to be seeking refuge among the Gentile nations. This is prophesied as well. So when this war breaks out, a lot of Jews are going to get out of Dodge. Revelation 12, 14 through 16. So he's going to have to defend himself against nations, in particular the south, the nations to the south, and the nations to the north. It's, it's going to be, uh, man, this is going to be serious, serious war, maybe unlike anything we've ever seen. Um, Twelve, he will lead successful military campaigns against his attackers. So he's going to be victorious against these enemies. Uh, 40B through 42, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. When Antichrist hears of this invasion... He is going to move his army from Europe because that's where he's originally headquartered. He's going to move his forces out of Europe. It could be uh, southern Europe. He's going to move them out of Europe into the Middle East. And as it says, overflowing through many countries like a flood. You're going to see kind of a a German blitzkrieg thing take place from probably the bottom end of Europe all the way through right on down into Israel. He will move very, very quickly, it says, into the beautiful land. That is is Israel. The reference there has to do with the land of Israel. His first strike will be against Egypt. For Egypt and her Arab allies, the Libyans and Cushites, are the ones who will initiate the invasion on Israel, right? It's the king of the south that attacks first. On this occasion, Antichrist will not conquer Israel the territory of Edom, Moab, and Ammon, now included in the present kingdom of Jordan. So some of this warfare is going to take place in the region of Jordan, but Antichrist is not going to be successful against those particular people groups in that area. But he will, he will gain control over many, many countries, okay? So he's going to lead successful military um, campaigns against his attackers, and he will, he will defeat them. Uh, 13, he will plunder his enemies. Verse 43. See, we're moving pretty quick, right? Verse 43, it says, He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. Antichrist will become even more powerful as he defeats these nations and takes their gold and silver reserves, as he gathers up the precious things from these nations. And another thing that will make him even more powerful is that he's going to take their soldiers and make them his soldiers, right? Those Libyans and Cushites and, and the Egyptian soldiers, all of the soldiers from those nations 
will follow in his train. In other words, they will become part of his military. His military probably just doubled at this point. So, and so did his gold, his silver, and all of the precious things. So he's going to plunder his enemies. This is something you will see. Have we seen anything like this? This is the thing that gets me about some of these end times views, is that people say these things have already happened. Have you seen anything like the things that we've been describing happen yet? There's been some serious things that have happened. 70 AD, before that, during Antiochus Epiphanes. But we haven't seen stuff like this. So, it's still to come. 14. He will hear, the Antichrist will hear alarming news and establish his stronghold in Jerusalem. We've already learned that he moves his forces down out of Europe and he sets up in, in Israel. But he's actually going to set up a command post, uh, um, his uh, central headquarters for his military in Jerusalem, verses 44 through 45a. It says, Daniel puts it like this, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. After defeating Egypt with its Arab allies and temporarily repelling the king of the north, maybe Russia, another invasion will quickly ensue. Uh, the king of the north will regroup and then join forces with an eastern kingdom, an eastern nation. Together, now this is incredible. The precision of God's predictions is just insane. This has not come to pass, it will. And it's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. When, when these two, when this king... This northern king joins with this eastern king, this emperor, whoever it is. When he join forces and enter Israel to take out Antichrist, they're coming with 200 million soldiers. Revelation 9.16. There has never been in the history of the world a, a, a group of fighting men and women of this magnitude. Just stop and think about it. Two hundred million soldiers. Do you realize that our nation has about 250 million people living here? There's no way that the United States could, could raise an army of that size. There's no way that Russia could raise an army of that size on its own. But if you took Russia and combined it with China, you could probably do it. Which empire is to the east? China. Just think about it. Is that the way that God is orchestrating all of this? Does Vladimir Putin join with, with, the, with the Chinese premier and, and that's how this comes together? Does it happen this soon? I think this is how it's going to play out. I can't think of any other nations in our history or that exist today that could raise that kind of army. I, I, I don't know of any others. Maybe, maybe this happens in 500 years. Maybe it happens in 1,000 years. I don't know. But when Antichrist hears of this invasion, he will become first alarmed, second ticked, third completely enraged. He will be so offended that these nations have come to usurp, destroy, take him out. He is going to take 
decisive action. He will establish his headquarters on what it says in the text, the glorious mountain. That is a reference to Jerusalem, which is literally located between the Mediterranean and Dead Seas. That's where it's strategically placed between there. That's where he's going to set up. He's going to set, what does it say? He's going to set up his palatial tent. What does palatial mean? It means a tent fit for a king. It means a palace-like tent. So he's going to set up his headquarters, his main place there in Jerusalem. And at this time, he will pose as Christ. This is when he does this, friends. This is when he claims to be Christ. This is when he assumes the position of Christ, the authority of Christ. This is when he says, look at all these nations that are coming in to destroy your land. I have come to redeem you, and I have come to save you. I have come to rescue you. And it says in Zechariah 12, 2 through 3, that his troops will fill the land. They're coming with 200 million He's going to have a serious army of his own that's going to fill the land. And he, this is the perfect time for him to really start promoting himself, not only as a God, but as that God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Look what's about to happen to us. I must do something. I am your Messiah, and I will surely deliver us. That is his message at this time. And you know what this is all going to do? Do you know what's playing out here during this time? This is setting the stage for the battle of all battles, the battle of Armageddon. You heard about that one? I'm not talking about a meteor coming down with Bruce Willis saving the world. That's Hollywood. This is setting the stage for the final battle. This is the ultimate world war, the ultimate world war. It is going to take place right in this theater, right in this 200-mile area of Israel, in particular, Jerusalem. This is where it's going to play out. This is going to be the the final showdown of Gentile power dominated by Satan in blasphemous opposition to the lordship of Jesus Christ. As the armies of the world are engaged in struggle for power throughout the Holy Land, And in the very act of sacking the city of Jerusalem, when this happens, when this war breaks out and and Jerusalem is being besieged again and these guys are fighting and the bloodshed is unlike anything you've ever seen, this is the ultimate world war. At this time, when God's people are being slaughtered, the glory of the Lord appears in heaven and the majestic procession pictured in Revelation 19, 11 through 16 takes place. At the head of the procession is Christ, described as riding on a white horse, coming to judge and make war. His eyes are as a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. His vesture is dipped in blood. Accompanying him are the armies of heaven, also riding on white horses and clothed in fine linen. In Revelation 19, 15 through 16, it says, From his mouth, this is, this is Jesus, the King of Kings, on his horse, coming right at this time, at this pivotal moment in history. From his mouth comes a sword, a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. What nations? All the nations that are gathered here, fighting out in this battle of Armageddon. And he will rule them, Right? He's not going to come and have to fight and he's going to, he's going to take losses. He's going to come and he's going to strike with that, 
He's going to strike down these nations with this sharp sword and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's not a rod that's flexible. It means my rule. He will rule them with a rod of iron, with sovereignty. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. According to Revelation 19.19, the armies of the world, those who are gathered at this place fighting, when Christ appears on His horse to make war, they're going to forget about their differences. They're going to be fighting each other. He's going to appear. They're going to realize they now have a common enemy. And they're going to join forces. Here's Armageddon. They're going to join together and begin to fight against Christ in the armies of heaven. Uh, The Apostle John writes, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. So in the middle of this battle where these kings are going back and forth and they're taking massive losses, they see Christ appear in the clouds in full glory and in power, ready to fight, and they join forces and begin to fight him. And their struggle against such an adversary will be absolutely useless. It is apparent that they are put to death, not by ordinary military struggle, but by the word of authority proceeding out of his mouth, described as a sharp sword. Revelation 19, 15. How does Christ destroy the nations and armies of the world? With words. That's power. Think about it right now. God brought all things into existence through words. Right? He created through the power of his words. He can destroy with his words. The word of God proceeds out of the mouth of Christ as a sharp sword. Hebrews 4.12. It's sharp. It... it, it um, separates marrow from tissue, right? It cuts us to the core and convicts us. That word of God that brings things into existence and can bring things out of existence, it is spoken and they drop, they die. That's power. All the armies and their horses are put to death with one stroke. The bloodshed stemming from this conflict is indicated in Revelation 14, 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle. 15, 15, my favorite verse, he will be defeated. 45b, yet he, Antichrist, shall come to his end with none to help him. (laughs) The guy with all the power the guy with all the influence, the guy with, the, with a huge military. The guy's military actually expanded when those other kings joined with him. Now you've got probably 300 million soldiers fighting. The guy who had all of that, who has all of that at this time, will come to his end and have no one to defend him. No one to defend him. Why is that? It's not that he won't have defenders. He will. It's because no one can defend against the hand of God. There is no defense. There is no defense. You read in Hebrews, it it is a, a dreadful, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? 
we're not talking about the loving hands of an Abba Father. We are talking about the all-powerful, almighty, all-destructive hands of the wrathful and completely just God. There is no escape from him, no matter how much money and power, influence, support you have. When he comes in wrath, there is nothing that anyone can do. Thus ends in one dramatic blow the power of the Gentiles, which had controlled Jerusalem from the time of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember when we first started studying in Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar marched his forces in 605 B.C. into Jerusalem and sacked the city and took Daniel and his three pals and the other nobles out of there? That's when the time of the Gentiles began. Time of the Gentiles meaning Gentile rule over the promised land. Right here with a word that is a sword, it is brought to an end. What follows the end of the time of the Gentiles? The kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ, right? That's what comes immediately after the destruction of the nations of the world. What you're looking at right here in this text, you're looking at the fulfillment of Daniel's vision in chapter 7, where the fourth great beast and little horn are destroyed and the Son of Man, right? The Son of Man establishes His kingdom and reign. You're seeing the fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2 where that stone not cut by human hands flies in and hits the feet, that future Roman Empire, strikes that statue, and it all comes tumbling down, turns into dust, and blows away. That's what you're seeing play out here. Well, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to look at the last set of predictions in, uh, in Daniel's fourth vision. And they have to do with Israel's final deliverance. And we will also conclude our walk through the book of Daniel. That will, that will be it. Unless God changes things from now till then, I think we're going to preach right through the 13 verses of that and wrap it up. But that'll be it. Daniel will be done and we'll... We'll move on to something else. I, I kind of find it hard to believe that it's over. All right, let's close it up. Last Sunday, I exhorted you to stay close to Jesus and to cling to Jesus as we walk the road, the path of sanctification, which is a lot like Israel's history, ups and downs, losses and victories, battles, right? This morning, I believe God wants us to engage in battle as we wait for these future events to unfold. In 2 Timothy 2.3, we are called soldiers for Christ. We are children of God. We are sons of God, in a sense. We are all these wonderful things, these names, these titles. But we are also soldiers for Christ. How often do we think of ourselves as a soldier? I think we like to think of ourselves as sons of God and daughters of God in these things more so. That seems more appealing and attractive. and It's just so loving. Well, there's nothing unloving about being a soldier. Not when you have a benevolent general who cares for us in ways that no earthly general ever could. We are soldiers. What do soldiers do? 
they train and they fight. Soldiers train and fight. And once in a while, they get a little R&R, right? How do we train? How about Acts 2, 42 to 47? We devote ourselves to the Word. More particularly, we devote ourselves to the preaching of the Word. We pray. We participate in the sacraments. We do that every week here with, with communion. We fellowship with one another. We build one another up. We even have some meals together and things. We spend time together in God's Word, in prayer, in fellowship. That's what we do. Those things are listed. How do you do church? Acts 2.42-47. to 47. That describes what the church is to be about. That's one way that we train, by engaging in those things. We also put on the armor of God, Ephesians 6. We covered that a couple of weeks ago. These things have to do with our training, getting into the Word, praying, fellowshipping, building one another up. You're being trained. You're being equipped for the ministry of the gospel. That's another way to put it. How do we fight? Our fight is not against flesh and blood. We fight spiritually. We destroy demonic strongholds with the truth, right? 2 Corinthians 10.4. We stand against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6.11. We flee from temptation, 2 Timothy 2.2. Okay, so the idea here is that we're not supposed to wait for Armageddon to get into the fight. So what I'm telling you is, is that the training is now, and guess what? The fight is now. Christ isn't preparing us for Armageddon, but he's preparing us for the fight that's going to happen when you walk out these doors. He's preparing you for the fight that's going to happen tonight at 6 when you get that call or where that image pops up on your computer screen, men. You know what I'm talking about. That's the fight. That's the battle. When you shouldn't drink and that beer is calling to you and you know that if one leads to another and to another and to another and then to a high-speed chase, that's the fight. That is the fight. That's resisting temptation. That is fleeing from temptation. The fight is also arguing on behalf of the truth in love. I had the opportunity this last week to, to put some of these things into practice. I began to interact with a guy who professes Christ on Facebook. And uh, the conversation, I ended up having to take the conversation back into an instant message. I just didn't think it was wise to keep going back and forth with him uh, on, on my news feed. It, that's just really the worst place in the world to debate anyone or talk to anyone. But uh, I started interacting with this guy, and I literally could not believe uh, that a local guy, had, uh, whom I've heard of, had taken up the, the position that he had taken up. That he truly, truly believes without question that God has created a thousand genders and that people that are living out these crazy things, I'm a cat, some women say, that God literally ordained and created the LGBTQRSLMNOP, I can't even keep up with the acronym, all of these genders he believes God ordained and people are simply walking in their created status. That it's completely normal. That he argues in favor of the genders. I was like, brother, just, well, I guess I shouldn't call him brother. 
just go back to Genesis. He created them male and female. Am I missing something? Well, those are the sexes. Those aren't gender. Okay, they're synonymous. God created them. Anything beyond male and female is, is a sin-caused distortion. And, and, and if you have a problem with that, then I've got a problem with you. And we need to meet. When you go down that path, he has gone down that wormhole. Am I suggesting that we don't love people and, and care? Of course not. But no Christian should take that road because now he will proclaim and preach a false gospel that has no power to save. That is engaging in spiritual warfare when you challenge somebody like that and you're kind and you're loving and you put scripture before them and maybe you just have to say, you're wrong, you've gone apostate. It's just all there is to it. He didn't even disagree with me when I said, you're a heretic. He knows it. That's an example of spiritual warfare. When you bring the truth against these worldly ideas and philosophies. And are they not growing and growing and expanding exponentially today? It's unreal. You say one thing in opposition to anything that the world has normalized today, and you are a bigot, you are a homophobe, you are a hater, you are this, you are that. I'm none of those things. I'm trying to point you to the one who can save you. Because the path that you're on results in this. It results in this judgment and destruction. And I know you don't have joy. You'll never find joy and purpose or any of the things that we truly need that truly satisfies in the philosophies of the world. You'll never find it. Pleading with people to turn from these things and to turn to Christ is spiritual warfare. You're not going to be popular, but is popularity what you're really after? You'll be popular. You just won't be popular in the way that you maybe want. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be hateful. This guy called himself a man of God. Be a man of God. Be a woman of God. Or do us all a favor and drop the title. You're bringing reproach upon Christ, upon the saints, upon the church. Don't do it. Do you proclaim the truth and, and, and do it in a loving fashion, right? Because we've got to be about love. We've got to be about love. It's got to be about someone's betterment, their salvation, not their condemnation. Do you do that? That's how we take down these demonic strongholds. We put the truth out there and we do it in love. Is that you? Do you stand against the schemes of the devil? Do you flee from temptation? Do you know how hard it is to flee from temptation at times? I'm a fly in temptations like a fly trap. I just, I, I do really well some days and other days I don't. But I'm commanded to flee from it. I've got to stay away from it. We know what temptation leads to, right? You've read the book of James. It leads to sin and sin leads to death. This is how, how do we train the word, prayer, fellowship, how do we fight, resist the devil, 
take down those strongholds with the word of God. Even if you don't see that stronghold coming down, God's word never returns void. Put it out there. Be bold. Be loving. Be bold. Put it out there. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. That's how we fight right now.